Good morning. This is the doctor's letter. You get a shiver in the dark, it's raining in the park, but meantime, sound of the river, you're stopping your whole. The Doctor's Letter, April 2018. April 2018 began with the story of a rape trial. Some well-known Ulster rugby players were accused of rape. They were found not guilty and acquitted. Some, mainly men, thought that having been exonerated on the rape charge, these men should return to their former lives as professional rugby players with Ulster, on the basis that they had not committed the crime of which they were accused. Others, mainly women, expressed the view that the behaviour of these men, as described during the trial and not denied by them, was to say the least degrading, and if not illegal, then certainly wrong. There was a third group, mainly men, who agreed with the women, but felt themselves unable to vocalise their disgust as the women did. I'd probably include myself in this group, except I have now decided to break cover and align formally and publicly with those who believe it is possible to be disreputable without being a convicted criminal. I don't believe I had a particularly protected or innocent upbringing, but the scenes of sexual depravity described in the Belfast rape trial were something I could not have imagined and even what we thought were pornographic magazines smuggled into the United Kingdom in the 1970s would not have contained anything like that which was described graphically during the trial. So these men, by their behaviour, did not apparently commit a crime, but they did, in my opinion, bring disrepute upon themselves and upon their profession as rugby players. One would like to believe that their exclusion from the Ulster rugby team was based at least in part on moral principles and not solely on commercial expediency and pressure from sponsors. April 2018 ended with yet another story of disaster in the Irish health system. A brave woman called Vicky Phelan was diagnosed with advanced cervical cancer. She had undergone screening under the cervical check programme two years earlier, and review of that test suggested that the diagnosis could have been made earlier. Vicky Phelan sued the company that reported the, as it turned out, erroneous test result, and was awarded a seven-figure out-of-court settlement. One of the conditions sought in the settlement was a so-called non-disclosure clause. This is in essence a condition whereby the aggrieved party takes the money and promises not to tell anybody. Vicky Phelan refused to be a party to this non-disclosure clause. Both these stories describe women who have suffered pain, fear and hardship, not so much at the hands of men, but at the hands of a society that accepts hypocrisy and secrecy, but paradoxically invades privacy and fails to respect confidentiality. So this month's Doctor's Letter will look at truth and honesty, at the role of media in revealing truth and reporting honesty, at the impact of governance structures on the way organisations discover and ration the truth, and on the bravery of people, and especially women, who suffer personal pain and hardship to reveal the truth and receive justice. Okay.
April 1958. On April the 2nd, 1958, wind speeds of 450 kilometers per hour were recorded in a tornado in Wichita Falls, Texas. We have come to attribute extreme weather events to climate change due to global warming. We think of climate change as something that has been going on for a while, but we only really became aware of in the past 20 to 30 years. In 1958, an extreme weather event was just that an event at the extreme end of the scale of similar events. The scientific theory that is the basis for climate change continues to gather evidence. Scientific evidence falls into two broad categories, experimental and observational. An experiment starts with a hypothesis or theory that one set of circumstances causes another. In the case of climate change, the theory is that the production and release of carbon dioxide, CO2, into the atmosphere results in an insulating effect on the entire planet and consequent global warming. The experiment involves releasing CO2, measuring its concentration in the atmosphere and seeing if the predicted rise in temperature occurs. So far so good. We're actually conducting this experiment and have been doing so since we started cutting down forests that absorb CO2 through photosynthesis and burning fossil fuels like coal and oil thereby releasing CO2 back into the air. We have measured the rise in temperature and concluded that a causal relationship between CO2 release and global warming exists. Is this conclusive proof? Not quite. What we should do is a parallel or control experiment where we take a planet identical to Earth, generate energy from sources that do not release CO2, leave the trees and forests unfelled and measure any temperature change. Thus the only difference between the two planets is the production and sequestration of CO2 on the one hand and the temperature change on the other. To make the experiment even more robust we would repeat it several times and probably look at a series of planets identical to Earth with varying levels of CO2 production and hope to see a correlation between CO2 production and temperature rise. Because these experiments are impossible, we must rely on observational evidence. We observe both CO2 levels and global temperature have risen and presume a causal relationship. Some agree with this presumption and some don't. Opinions are informed not only by objective science but by self-interest. Thus the oil companies tend not to support the theory and the conservationists do. Does any of this matter? The second part of the theory postulates that the global warming represents a global rise in energy so more water evaporates from the oceans and more water falls as rain and the wind speeds in the weather systems that constitute the atmosphere also increase. 
So politicians have done what politicians have to do. Listen to the advice, weigh the evidence, and make laws or treaties that drive behaviour in a desirable direction. On a national level, legislation can be cumbersome and lag behind social needs. On a global level, the time frames are painfully long. Reversing climate change through international treaties and changing human behaviour is probably impossible. Better to use our energy and resources to predict more accurately the effects of climate change and plan ways to deal with those effects. Thus, if sea levels are going to rise and low-lying regions suffer floods and devastation, then we should anticipate mass migration out of these places and make provision for it. Building walls on national borders is not likely to be helpful. In the 1950s, a new and exciting form of energy that was not derived from fossil fuels was being developed. Nuclear power offered the promise of vast amounts of energy from tiny quantities of matter, courtesy of a very large number, that is the speed of light multiplied by itself. This power could light cities or destroy them, depending on how it was packaged. But trust in politicians and authority generally was just starting to unravel. And so on the 4th of April 1958, the newly established Campaign for Nuclear Disarmament, CND, unveiled its iconic symbol at a public march in Aldermaston, UK, site of the Atomic Weapons Research Establishment on a former Royal Air Force airfield. In the 60 years since 1958, countries that have atomic bombs and those that don't have enjoyed modest success at controlling the proliferation of nuclear weapons, although verification of compliance remains inevitably problematic. On April 28, 1958, Great Britain tested a nuclear weapon on Christmas Island in the Pacific. On the same day, Richard Nixon, Vice President of the United States, began a goodwill tour of Latin America. On April 6, 1958, Arnold Palmer won the golfing masters at Augusta, Georgia. When a journalist suggested he was a lucky golfer, Palmer famously replied, the more I practice, the luckier I get. On April 18th, a US federal court ruled that poet Ezra Pound be released from a psychiatric hospital. The ruling referred to the institution as an insane asylum. And on April the 14th, the second ever spacecraft Sputnik 2 containing the corpse of Laika the space dog, re-entered Earth's atmosphere and burned up.
April 1968. Those of us who grew up in Europe in the 1960s remember a time of liberal attitudes and tolerance. We believed that, in the words of Beatle John Lennon, all you need is love. Our attitudes were powerfully altruistic and naive. We didn't realise things weren't quite the same in the United States. We all knew about the evil of apartheid in South Africa, but we looked towards the USA for progress in all areas, science, space exploration, music and fashion of all types. The reality of racial intolerance and segregation in parts of America was of course somewhat different. Whites and blacks lived in different neighbourhoods, went to different schools, travelled on different buses, used different toilets. And this segregation was enshrined in law and enforced sometimes brutally by the police. The most iconic hero of the struggle for civil rights for black Americans was the Reverend Martin Luther King Jr. In an era when the leader of the most powerful country in the world likes to rally the troops using catchphrases on social media, I feel huge nostalgia for the great public speakers that for two millennia led public opinion. Now that we have courses in leadership, we have sadly few examples of really effective leaders and virtually none of great oratory. Michael King was born on the 15th of January 1929 in Atlanta, Georgia, and his father changed his name to honour the Reformation theologian Martin Luther. He became a Baptist minister in Montgomery, Alabama, and led the Montgomery bus boycott in 1955-56. On the 26th of August 1963, he addressed 250,000 supporters at the Lincoln Memorial in Washington in a famous speech remembered for six short paragraphs, each beginning with the words, I have a dream. Four years after the March on Washington, on April the 3rd, 1968, King gave an informal reflective speech in Memphis, Tennessee, ending with a final paragraph, which I quote in full. Well, I don't know what will happen now. We've got some difficult days ahead. But it doesn't matter with me now, because I've been to the mountaintop. And I don't mind. Like anybody, I would like to live a long life. Longevity has its place but I'm not concerned about that now. I just want to do God's will, and he's allowed me to go up to the mountain, and I've looked over, and I've seen the promised land, and I'm happy tonight. I'm not worried about anything. I'm not fearing any man. Mine eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. The next day, April 4th, 1968, the Reverend Martin Luther King Jr. was assassinated on the balcony of the Lorraine Motel by a bullet shot by James Earl Ray. On April 11, 1968, President Lyndon B. Johnson signed the 1968 Civil Rights Act into law. Johnson is remembered as the president who was projected into office by the assassination of John F. Kennedy in 1963. He is not remembered as a charismatic president, and he was no orator. But he did win a resounding election victory in 1964 to gain a second term, 
And he did steer the widely unpopular civil rights bill through Congress and the Senate against strong opposition, not least from his own traditional support base in Texas. On April 20th, 1968, British Conservative MP Enoch Powell addressed a meeting of the Conservative Political Centre in Birmingham, UK. His speech criticised mass immigration and in particular the proposed race relations bill. It became known as the Rivers of Blood speech, although the accurate quote is an allusion to a line from Virgil's Aeneid. As I look ahead, I'm filled with foreboding. Like the Roman, I seem to see the river Tiber foaming with much blood. Enoch Powell was highly educated and intelligent, and although his sentiments were clearly misguided and resulted in his dismissal from Conservative leader Edward Heath's shadow cabinet, he remained popular with a large segment of the British public, and his perspective on immigration has been cited as a factor in the surprise Conservative victory in the 1970 UK general election. On April 29, 1968, the musical Hair opened at the Biltmore Theatre in New York for 1,750 performances. April 1978. On April 2nd, 1978, the TV series Dallas, starring Larry Hagman and Barbara Bel Geddes, premiered on CBS television as a five-week mini-series. Dallas sits at the crossroads between the traditional soap opera and the blockbuster TV drama. The soaps were often broadcast live and funded, as their name testifies, with sponsorship from washing powder manufacturers. They were low-budget stories of everyday people. Dallas and its successors became huge commercial enterprises whose stars command astronomical fees and global celebrity. We love the soaps because the misery of their characters makes us feel a bit better about our own sad lives. And we love Dallas precisely because it depicts wealth and lifestyle most of us can barely imagine. But we are comforted because in spite of their wealth, the inhabitants of Dallas are still miserable and have a high likelihood of meeting violent death. On the same day the world was introduced to Dallas, a new and useful invention for sticking things together was launched under the Velcro brand. I failed to notice the advent of both Dallas and Velcro because I was in April 1978 a final year medical student just four weeks away from the start of the final exams. We would be examined in five subjects, medicine, surgery, obstetrics and gynaecology, paediatrics and psychiatry. In each subject there was a written paper, part of which was multiple choice questions, 
a clinical examination where we would see real patients and describe them to the examiners, and an oral or viva voce exam. And that was it. Nothing we had done or achieved in the preceding six years contributed to the final degree award except these relatively brief snapshots of our learning. Nowadays, most medical schools use a modular curriculum, and every 10 to 20 years the whole show is put in a bag and shaken, and the bits rearranged according to some new theme or template. So we abolished traditional discipline-based academic departments, where the walls of the buildings roughly match the material that is taught within them, anatomy, physiology, biochemistry, etc. And we replaced them with modular or systems-based themes, cardiovascular, respiratory, gastrointestinal, and so on. We tell ourselves this is an exercise in reform and not logistics, but we still end up constrained by timetables and availability of lecture theatres. And we worship faithfully the God of change. In 1978, we were not guided by sophisticated learning strategies. The curriculum was whatever the examiners decided to examine, and the preparation consisted in reading reams of multiple-choice questions, some memorised by our antecedents and some marketed by commercial publishers. So we read textbooks until we fell asleep, and some of us transcribed the text into our own notes, hoping the act of writing would magically aid memory and recall. Multiple-choice questions are familiar now to most people. They are an efficient test of memory, and although widely decried, they are actually an effective way of getting students to learn stuff, or knowledge as we used to call it. The clinical examination in 1978 was essentially the same as that beautifully depicted in the 1954 Ealing comedy Doctor in the House, based on a novel by Richard Gordon, and starring Dirk Bogard, Kenneth Moore and James Robertson Justice. Bogard and Moore are respectively medical students Simon Sparrow and Richard Grimsdyke, and James Robertson Justice is the archetypal authoritarian senior surgeon Sir Lancelot Spratt. Modern medical educationalists, some of whom are doctors, like to use Lancelot Spratt as an example of how not to be empathetic and caring. They conveniently forget that Spratt's patients and colleagues, if they feared him, loved him more, and trusted him. Trust is only misplaced when it is abused, and abuse of trust is a more characteristic feature of the health systems of 2018 than 1978. Spratt was undoubtedly authoritarian, but it seems to me that today's doctors are falling over themselves to avoid seeming authoritarian, and in the process we have abdicated our authority. On April the 15th and 23rd, respectively, Great Britain and the USSR tested nuclear weapons. On April the 7th, US President Jimmy Carter deferred production of the neutron bomb. This was a particularly cynical and nasty type of weapon designed to kill and deform living creatures with radiation, whilst preserving valuable buildings and material infrastructure. On April 14th, the Korean Airlines Boeing 707 passenger plane was shot down by the Soviet Union while flying over Russia. And on April the 12th, 1978, Kenny Rogers won the Country Music Award.
April 1988. On April the 9th, 1988, the musical Les Miserables opened in Umida Coma Theatre, Osaka. April 1988 must have been a fairly quiet month. I don't remember any significant event from that month. I was approaching the end of a three-year stint as lecturer in medicine at St Vincent's Hospital in Dublin and presumably tying up loose ends before moving north of the River Liffey for the first time in my career. As I write this piece with a deadline to record the podcast tomorrow, I'm reminded of those days when my medical research career was struggling to survive and the words of wisdom were being squeezed out like blood from a stone. Although most doctors will spend most of their waking hours in the practice of medicine, our suitability for promotion and progress in our careers is measured by our research productivity. We all do research as part of our training, and we tell ourselves this is not because we're all budding Nobel laureates, but because excellence in clinical medicine depends on a thorough understanding of medical science and the evidence base underpinning good clinical practice. The truth is more mundane. The ability to produce research papers and publications is a measure of one's ability to complete a task that is important but not urgent. Medical training ensures that we all have more or less the same experience and more than enough to become competent independent practitioners. We all do more or less the same examinations. We all have good references from our mentors and we all have fairly adequate presentation skills that allow us to perform at interview. So the only discriminant that distinguishes between candidates for a consultant post is research. Those who have published papers in international peer-reviewed journals are ranked above those who have not. So you do what you have to do, in this case, publish. In April 1988, I was probably writing research papers based on work I had completed two or three years previously that were already stale, even if they had ever made some small contribution to man's understanding of the nature of things. Anyway, I managed to complete some of the papers and get them published, and the rest is still in cardboard boxes in the attic. To my surprise, I recently became aware of some current research on respiratory muscle fatigue that bears a striking resemblance to work I did in 1984, but never published. On April 12, 1988, Researchers at Harvard University patented a genetically engineered mouse, the first animal to be produced through genetic manipulation. Note, they patented their discovery before publishing. Medical research was by 1988 big business. It was important to protect the fiscal as well as the intellectual value of new knowledge. One piece of research was by 1988 accepted as fact. Smoking is bad for your health, and being around cigarette smoke, passive smoking as it became known, is also bad. When Dahl and Hill observed a correlation between cigarette smoking and lung cancer in the 1960s, their interpretation was resisted and contested by the tobacco industry for decades. By 1988, tobacco advertising was defended by the industry because it did not encourage people to start smoking but only to change brands of cigarette. On April 23rd in the United States, a federal smoking ban was introduced on all flights lasting two hours or less. 
The Eurovision Song Contest is an arcane phenomenon that is widely derided yet resolutely popular. On April 30th, 1988, the contest was held in Dublin because in the previous year, 1987, it had been won by Ireland's representative Johnny Logan, singing Hold Me Now. Does anyone remember this song today? Canadian singer Celine Dion, representing Switzerland, won Eurovision in 1988 in Dublin with a song entitled Ne Partez Pas Sans Moi. I don't remember Ne Partez Pas Sans Moi, but Celine Dion is a singer I enjoy and admire, so I checked out this song for possible inclusion in the podcast. You can find it on Google Play and Spotify, but I wouldn't bother. By far the best thing to come out of the Eurovision Song Contest was Michael Flatley's Riverdance. This was the interval act in the 1994 Eurovision Song Contest, also in Dublin. The modern interpretation of traditional Irish dancing was stunning, and none of the other acts in that year's Eurovision was as memorable or enjoyed such enduring success. For the record, the winner in 1994 was Rock and Roll Kids by Irish entry Paul Harrington and Charlie McGettigan, who must curse Michael Flatley and Riverdance for upstaging them. When I was young I never needed anyone And making love was just fun Those days are gone Living alone I think of all April 1998. On April 18th, 1998, film director Baz Luhrmann won a BAFTA for his interpretation of William Shakespeare's play Romeo and Juliet. I don't go to the cinema often and I'm not in any sense of movie buff, but this one sticks in my memory. I probably saw it on TV and probably late at night when I was supposed to be writing a research paper, although by 1998 I'd abandoned my ambition for a Nobel Prize in medicine and an Olympic gold medal for sailing, for that matter. This movie is brilliant because it completely transposes the setting to 20th century USA whilst retaining the language and dialogue exactly as Shakespeare wrote them. I like Leonardo DiCaprio, who plays Romeo in Lerman's film. For some reason, the purists don't rate him, and he does struggle with his weight, but his acting style works for me. Romeo and Juliet remains the classic love story, Two lovers kept apart by circumstance who would give up their lives rather than each other. On April 10th, 1998, an agreement was signed by representatives of all political parties in Northern Ireland, together with those from the governments of the United Kingdom and the Republic of Ireland. This agreement is variously known as the Good Friday Agreement or the Belfast Agreement. 
The most remarkable aspect of the Good Friday Agreement was that it achieved what most commentators thought impossible, a negotiated settlement between two factions that were hitherto implacably opposed. The Unionists favoured continuation of and further tightening of the link between Northern Ireland and Great Britain. It is this link that is the origin of the term United Kingdom, referring to the United Kingdom of Great Britain and Northern Ireland. Without this union, the internationally recognised name of the nation becomes meaningless. The nationalists, represented by two distinct political groupings, Sinn Féin and the SDLP, favour union with the Republic of Ireland, or at least the dissolution of the union with Great Britain. These aspirations are fundamentally irreconcilable. The Northern Ireland Act 1998 replaced the Government of Ireland Act 1920 and stated that Northern Ireland would remain part of the United Kingdom until and unless a majority of the people of Northern Ireland wished otherwise. The Act also devolved power from Westminster to a Northern Ireland Assembly and crucially that Assembly was required to form an executive that contained representatives from all sides. The operation of the Assembly and the Executive over the 20 years of its existence has been far from smooth and the idiosyncratic demeanour of Ulster politicians has ensured a constant maelstrom of government. The Assembly is at present in abeyance and Northern Ireland is effectively without government. This is especially unfortunate as the Brexit process of British withdrawal from the European Union will have seismic repercussions for all of Ireland, North and South. In this case, what has the agreement achieved? The answer is a way of life that most democracies regard as normal and unremarkable. To live life without the shadow of the bomb and the bullet. Without suspicion and sharply demarcated tribal apartheid. Of course, it's not perfect, and many, myself included, would say the old tribal prejudices are barely below the surface. I've often thought that the extremes in Northern Ireland have more in common with each other than with the rest of the human race. You could probably apply this dictum to all forms of terrorism. And both sides of the divide feel to some extent betrayed by the Irish and British governments for breaking other promises that bolstered the 1998 settlement. So it's not perfect. But as with all proposed change, the comparison must be with the status quo and not with the holy grail of the ideal solution. Most people living in Northern Ireland have experienced a better life since 1998 than before then, and the loss and destruction of life through terrorist violence has abated almost completely. On April 23, 1998, 30 years and 19 days after he murdered Martin Luther King, James Earl Ray died from complications of hepatitis C. No one in the 1960s had heard of hepatitis C. It is a blood-borne infection spread through transfusion of blood products, intravenous drug use and sexual contact. One of the many Irish health scandals, the most recent of which I shall discuss shortly, happened when up to 1,600 pregnant Irish women were given a blood product by the Blood Transfusion Service Board in an attempt to treat rhesus incompatibility with their fetus. In 1996, another brave Irish woman named Bridget Ellen McColl 
died within hours of reaching a £175,000 settlement with the board following a protracted battle where every attempt was made by agents of the state to obstruct justice. The unfortunate Bridget McCole thus suffered a painful and curtailed life, made more so by professionals charged with promoting and protecting citizens' health. Apart from 1,600 other women infected with a debilitating and life-shortening virus, the political career of Health Minister Michael Noonan also foundered on the rock of ineptitude and cover-up. 22 years later, the lessons of the hepatitis C debacle appear to have been forgotten, as the sin of clinical error is compounded by willful dishonesty. Ironically, it is now possible to cure hepatitis C, but government inertia over the cost of treatment means life-saving and therapeutically proven medication is withheld by bureaucracy. April 2008, another quiet month news-wise. I embarked on the reconstruction of a 300-year-old Georgian farmhouse that came with the 25 acres of land we acquired for my daughter's equestrian enterprise. Over the past 10 years, I've learnt a good deal about old houses, and those lessons can be summarised in a single sentence. If it's not broke, don't fix it. We poured money and modern materials into trying to fix minor problems with damp and drafts, until we started listening to the house tell us to leave it alone. So now I'm quite expert in the renovation of old houses, and I won't make the same mistakes again, mainly because I will never again embark on a similar project. On April 4th, singer-songwriter Beyoncé Knowles married rap artist Jay-Z in a 13,500-square-foot penthouse apartment in New York. In case you're wondering what a 13,500-square-foot apartment looks like, it's about 34 times as big as the apartment some families try to live in in Dublin. On April 5th, Charlton Heston, star of the epic film Ben-Hur, died aged 84. And on April 25th, Humphrey Littleton, jazz musician and broadcaster, died aged 86 in London, UK. Humphrey Richard Adeen Littleton, was born in Eton, Buckinghamshire, into an aristocratic English family. He taught himself the trumpet at school and became part of the trad jazz revival, leading an eight-piece band and recording one hit record, Bad Penny Blues. But Littleton's real fame was as a radio broadcaster. He presented BBC Two's The Best of Jazz for 40 years and hosted a panel game, I'm Sorry I Haven't a Clue, on BBC Radio 4 
becoming the UK's oldest panel game host. He epitomised the dry, affable, slightly eccentric product of decaying British or aristocracy. And his broadcasting was gentle, pointless and reassuringly comfortable, like an old armchair. April 2018, a rather sad and depressing month, unless you're a supporter of Leinster Rugby. It began with the Belfast rape trial mentioned in the introduction, which had no winners, and about which I've already said enough. In the middle was some really good rugby from Leinster, which added icing to the cake baked by the Irish rugby team in winning the Six Nations Grand Slam with a very satisfying win over England at Twickenham on Patrick's Day. Those who have followed Irish rugby in leaner times enjoyed it all the more. At the end was a good news story turned sour by institutional dishonesty and cowardice. The good news is that the cancer screening programmes established by the Health Service Executive, HSE, have saved hundreds of lives. This was achieved with the help of altruistic and committed clinicians who gained no financial reward or celebrity from their involvement in the programmes and could have enjoyed less challenging and more lucrative lives if they'd concentrated on building up their own private practice rather than national cancer screening programmes. I remember as an intern 40 years ago attending the weekly breast clinic at Dublin's Adelaide Hospital. This comprised between 15 and 20 women who had had surgery for breast cancer. We spoke with the black humour that medics use to insulate themselves from human tragedy about seeing 15 women with 14 breasts between them. All had lost one breast to mutilating surgery and some had lost both. Patients attending specialty clinics form a bond of mutual support and get to know each other well. Sadly, these women spent a fair amount of time attending each other's funerals. The treatment of all cancers has improved dramatically in 40 years. Breast cancer in particular has become a condition where cure is the expectation rather than the exception. Much of the improvement in survival has resulted from public awareness and early detection through screening programmes. Cervical cancer has also undergone a revolution in treatment and more recently prevention. This cancer can be prevented and potentially eradicated using human papillomavirus, HPV, vaccination. Remarkably, but not unexpectedly, there is resistance in some quarters to HPV vaccination on the basis that preventing a sexually transmitted disease will promote promiscuity. The cervical check programme has the potential to save lives as the breast check programme has. Indeed, many hundreds of lives have been saved and misery averted by this programme. Screening for cancer involves doing a simple non-invasive test 
that will identify patients who have cancer or are at high risk of developing it. But the tests are rarely black and white. There's always a percentage of false positives, people in whom the screening indicates cancer, but in whom further investigation reveals none. And there are false negatives, people in whom the screening detects no cancer, but who develop it later. A test that is too sensitive falsely identifies people without cancer, leading to unnecessary worry, investigation and expense. A test that is too specific misses some with cancer by reporting a negative result in those who actually have the disease. No screening test is perfect, and the decision to recommend screening depends on showing a greater benefit through early diagnosis of silent cancers and a lesser risk of wasting resources and instituting treatments that may not change the outcome. Prostate cancer screening with PSA testing is particularly controversial in this regard. Vicky Phelan had a screening test for cervical cancer that was negative. Two years later she developed the disease. Review of the original test revealed that there were, with hindsight, changes suspicious of cervical cancer. So there was a mistake. Mistakes happen. It was the way the mistake was handled that was so appalling. Vicky Phelan was not told about the mistake. And worse, it would appear this was not an omission. A decision was taken not to tell Vicky Phelan what had happened, and her only recourse was to pursue the truth through litigation. It may well be that the decision to withhold information was made following legal advice, on the basis that the information might lead to further litigation. Whether this approach is strategically indicated is irrelevant. It is simply wrong. Doctors must know and must be taught that if they're unsure how to proceed and are worried about litigation, then the right thing to do is the right thing to do. We must take our direction from our moral compass first and legal advice second. And finally, before we doctors start consoling ourselves that it's all the lawyer's fault, let's remember, there were doctors in this case and in many other cases who shirked the responsibility to have a difficult conversation with the patient by passing the buck. We are members of an elite profession and enjoy respect and privilege which I believe we deserve. It is an honour and a privilege to have learnt the skills to practice medicine. We must therefore bear the burden of responsibility that goes with this privilege. And not least among our responsibilities is to tell the truth and not to withhold it either willfully or through timidity. I am not in love But I'm open to persuasion East or West Where's the best For romancing With a friend I can smile But with a lover I could hold my hand back And finally, a poem, A Legend of Truth by Rudyard Kipling. 
Once on a time, the ancient legends tell, Truth, rising from the bottom of her well, looked on the world, but hearing how it lied, returned to her seclusion, horrified. There she abode, so conscious of her worth, not even Pilate's question called her forth, nor Galileo, kneeling to deny the laws that hold our planet neath the sky. Meantime, her kindlier sister, whom men call fiction, did all her work, and more than all, with so much zeal, devotion, tact, and care, that no one noticed truth was otherwhere. Then came a war, when, bombed and gassed and mined, truth rose once more, perforce, to meet mankind, and through the dust and glare and wreck of things, beheld a phantom on unbalanced wings, reeling and groping, dazed, dishevelled, dumb, but semaphoring direr deeds to come. Truth hailed and bade her stand. The quavering shade clung to her knees and babbled, Sister, aid, I am, I was, thy deputy, and men besought me for my useful tongue or pen to gloss their gentle deeds, and I complied, and they and thy demands were satisfied. But this she pointed o'er the blistered plain, where men as gods and devils wrought amain. This is beyond me. Take thy work again. Tablets and pens transferred, she fled afar, and truth assumed the record of the war. She saw, she heard, she read. She tried to tell facts beyond precedent and parallel, unfit to hint or breathe, much less to write. But happening every minute, day and night, she called for proof. It came. The dossiers grew. She marked them first return, this can't be true. Then underneath the cold official word, this is not really half of what occurred. She faced herself at last, the story runs, and telegraphed her sister, come at once, facts out of hand, unable overtake without your aid. Come back for truth's own sake. Co-equal rank and powers if you agree. They need us both, but you far more than me. On the doctor's letter we heard, 
Sultans of Swing by Dire Straits. Woman by John Lennon. Who'll Stop the Rain by Creedence Clearwater Revival. Aquarius by Fifth Dimension. The Theme from Dallas by Gerald Immel. All by Myself by Celine Dion. The Needle and the Damage Done by Neil Young. Bad Penny Blues by Humphrey Littleton. Love and Affection by Joan Armour Trading. And It Ain't Over Till It's Over by Lenny Kravitz. I am Jeff Chadwick. This has been The Doctor's Letter. You can read The Doctor's Letter at www.thedoctorsletter.com. The Doctor's Letter is written by Jeff Chadwick and produced by Gavin Hennessy. Join us next time for the next Doctor's Letter. Good night.